0: I think it's time to come together, you and I can make a change. Maybe we can make a difference, make the world a better place, undivided. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, the show where we explore the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide and sometimes other divides, and then figure out what in the heck we can do to begin to overcome it because we really need to overcome the divide. And today on Two Worlds, One Country, I'm incredibly excited to have two guests who have been living the quest to reach out, um, to build trust, to overcome the divide uh, through their own lives. My guests today are Chloe Maxman and Canyon Woodard, and both of them together, worked to get Chloe elected to State House and then State Senate in the great state of Maine. Very recently, this was in 2018 and 2020. So they collaborated on a winning campaign that you will hear about today in rural, a very rural part of Maine. And subsequent to that, they've also collaborated to write a marvelous book called Dirt Road Revival, and have now started an organization that helps to promote the ideas that helped them win seats in rural Maine help Chloe win seat in rural Maine and that organization is called Dirt Road Organizing. So we're thrilled to have with us today Chloe and Canyon. Good morning. Good morning Anthony. Thanks for having us.
1: You good, bet. good morning.
0: Great. Wonderful. So we're going to start with um, a little bit of background on both of you, if that's okay, we'll we'll start with Chloe. A um, little bit about where you were born and raised, and uh, kind of moving up to some of your early organizing in college. And I think that's where you and Canyon uh, connected, if I recall. And so we'll start with Chloe, and then Canyon jump in. Just a kind of quick synopsis of who you are.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And it's we we are love you and all of the work that you're doing and so great to be in conversation and partnership. I grew up in a small town of about 1600 people in rural Maine and uh I just really love where I'm from. I love I love my community. I I love everything about it and my whole life has really been about asking myself the question, how can I best fight for my for my home? And, um my my rural hometown like so many rural hometowns is is quite conservative but growing up and living there it's not about political party it's about your values are you a good person do you show up when someone needs you i think those values are getting more and more politicized as Mm -hmm. as we march on into the 21st century but that's still why I love my hometown and fight for it. I I started to do a lot of organizing work when I was in high school, getting exposed to, you know, the power of young people when they band together to do something. Then I I went to Harvard for college and did a lot of fossil fuel divestment work there. That's where really where I learned to to truly organize and to truly build power with with a lot of people to confront an injustice and Canyon and I co-coordinated divest Harvard together. We had uh, such vivid memories of both of us, you know, sitting sitting at a blockade or or in a protest, being like, "Wow, this is cool. This doesn't exist back home." And oh my gosh, we love this community that we're organizing with. And wow, we can't imagine transplanting this back home it would have to look really different if we were organizing for climate justice in our rural community versus what it looks like here in progressive cambridge so you know we really started talking about that and start talking about how how can movements have a political power in general you know not just specifically to rural communities so after college we both went and worked on a bunch of political campaigns and we, we kind of had the same mind meld of of, wow, you know, campaigns are are really leaving behind rural communities. And we saw that epitomized in 2016 when Trump was elected. And we also just felt like campaigns were missing some of that heart and soul and movement building magic that we had experienced in college. So in 2018, I decided to run for office. Uh, Canyon moved up to Maine to be the campaign manager. And it really was um, us just trying to experiment with how we could merge movement building power with a new type of rural electoral politics that was really connecting with people on progressive values but but through the lens of a rural context so um
0: wonderful that's great i I want to hear i want to hear a lot about the campaign but i want to get uh canyon and canyon you i think you're a north carolina boy tell us a little bit about your growing up and kind of your journey that um took you to harvard and and then connecting with chloe on some of these issues
2: yeah sure um Yep. Grew up in in southern Appalachia, very, very western tip of North Carolina, real, really rural area, increasingly conservative. And I was homeschooled for for most of my life up until college um, with the youngest of a bunch of awesome, awesome siblings with parents who really, really opened us up to, to a lot of diverse viewpoints and And different views, and prioritized experiential education, and remember really digging into into like specifically the U.S.'s role in the world, going going down the protests at um, Fort Benning for like the School of Americas, and sort of having having you know reading a People's History of of the United States by Howard Zinn, and kind of getting a getting a more critical look at at the us's role in the world and um you were doing up, this in high school kenya yeah mm-hmm. and even even younger okay. um yeah grew up you know grew up with a, i think in part because of that kind of education a, a really a really critical view towards the state and towards american american politics in general and um and a pretty strong distrust of of both parties and The system in general. And I really wanted nothing to do with politics for the most part growing up. And honestly, it really wasn't until college, I would say, and diving really deep into climate organizing and seeing the power of bottom up organizing and realizing that the reason we weren't making the gains that we needed on climate or any other issue was because of the people that we have in office and that. Nothing's going to change unless we, you know, hold our na- noses and wade into the muck and try and do something about it. And so I graduated in 2015, right as Bernie was ramping up his um, his wild underdog campaign, and I started working for him as a regional field director in a super rural part of South Carolina. And yeah, he you know he really spoke to me as someone who is kind of bridging the social movement and electoral politics divide and and bringing bringing social movement organizers together under under one umbrella and yeah and then i worked for a local state senate campaign back in my home district in the mountains later on in 2016 and then and then started working with with chloe and really haven't looked back since
0: yeah and so both of you by the time you got to harvard not just any school you really already had it in your bones Um, the desire uh, for social change, the sense that you could do something about it, you could be a part of it, because a lot of people feel like the world isn't right, but nothing you can do. You guys clearly didn't buy that. And then you also had a a good good base of skills. So you took that to Harvard with the divestment campaign. I'm guessing you probably were involved in some other organizing too – and then um, upon graduating, not too long after, Chloe decides to run, and, and Canyon's her right-hand guy on that. So let me, let me ask a little bit about that. And again, I want to get to lots of other dimensions of what you've done and what you're doing now, so we'll try to move into this quickly. But uh, starting with Chloe again, tell us a little bit about your motivation for running and then um, also a bit about that house district where you ran so people understand how you were running in an area that most Dems wouldn't consider running in.
1: Yeah. So, um, in 2018, I ran for my hometown district 88. The, the house districts in Maine are pretty small. It's about, it's about 9,000 people. Uh, and it's, a it was a plus 16 Republican district that hadn't been won, by a democrat since it had been redistricted at the beginning of the decade uh the the majority of the district lies in lincoln county which is the oldest county by age in maine and maine is the oldest state in the country and lincoln county is also tied as the most rural county in maine and at the time maine was the most rural state in the country wow. so there is a lot of really interesting dynamics at play because you know at Canyon and I were both 25 when we started this journey running in a a county of of mostly older folks and, um, you know, but it, it is my hometown, I, I, you know, I decided to run because I, I felt like every experience that I had with politics really related back to feeling very unheard and very unrepresented by the people that I had voted for and I, you know, after being inside the system now, I so I recognize more deeply that there are incredible people that are in office and that have always been in office really fighting for the right thing. But as a as a citizen, my predominant experience of politics and especially organizing to try to change politics was just being completely stonewalled. And, you know, I also felt like my rural hometown was really left behind by by the Democratic Party in general, you know, as part of that trend that we all know so well of rural communities going to the right very hard in the last 15 years. And so I, I also felt a responsibility after Trump was elected to kind of dig into my community and be like, okay, what is going on here? Why do I, I love my community so much. I love all my neighbors and I see Trump signs all over the place. So it was, it was the moment to dig in.
0: Yeah, and so how did you dig in? And 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 Canyon can chime in as well. Like, what what did you do either before you formally launched? Uh, I won't say or and after the campaign was officially under the way underway to begin to get to the bottom of why there were so many Trump signs and how you might communicate across that.
1: Yeah, you know, I think at the core was that we made we we did two things. One is we literally had big pieces of poster paper on the walls in our house that had you know like what is our vision for our rural communities and like how cool would it be if there is a movement a vibrant movement of young people organizing for good stuff in rural communities and you know what would it be like if we really took the time to go talk to people that democrats don't usually talk to and these were all kind of like hypotheses that we had put there before we had been exposed to this much larger world of rural politics and we also made a pretty conscious decision not to work with the Democratic Party our our local county democrats are incredible and do so much amazing work and we could not have won without them the the state party is also staffed with really good people but um you know they're just kind of under-resourced and so we realized pretty quickly we weren't going to get what we needed from them to win so we did things like we created our own canvassing universe which really enabled us to go talk with voters who had never been contacted by a democrat before or had just not been contacted in a really really long time like since obama ran in 2008 and um and we did a whole bunch of other things too but i think at the core of it was was a commitment to organizing everybody in our community and not just the people who agreed with us and you know, through that we um, just gained so much respect and empathy for folks who have a different viewpoint than us, you know, and found that space where you can agree on some things and disagree on others, but have a deep mutual respect.
0: So give us a little, and and again, Kenyon, you can jump in here, give us a little sense of what that was like in practice. That That was your goal based on a uh, kind of a premise or a philosophy that um, that people move away from you when they feel like you aren't listening to them, when you don't pay attention to them, when you don't address the the needs and concerns they have. You wanted to turn that around. You created your own canvassing universe, meaning you didn't use vote builder or van, uh, or at least you didn't use that exclusively. But what did that look like in practice, too?
2: Yeah, so um, just uh, for, first off, we did we did use vote builder very much leaned into that, but rather okay. than rather than just kind of taking the target universe handed down by the state party, dug into that data and created our own so that we made sure to to reach the folks that we needed to reach in in a district like this, because we needed to go pretty deep into conservative independence as well as pulling over a significant chunk of Republicans to to win in that district. And, you know, I think I think zooming out a little bit at its at its core, it was about Democrats, Democrats having lost relationships in, in these communities. You know, when we were when Chloe and I were in high school, the partisan split of rural communities was dead even. And by the time we came home from college, the split had grown, grown from not existing to 16 points in favor of Republicans. Just a massive, massive gap from the time that we were in high school to the time that we came back after college. And that was shocking. Yeah, that is. So much. I mean, there's so much wrapped up in that. It could be a a long discussion in itself. And, you know, you've you've dug into that so, so much. but yeah, that's kind of
0: Ruby's reason for being, for sure. <laughs> is, totally. is, is understanding that. So, so then, how did that? Um, given that, how did that play out and in, in the strategy of the campaign?
2: Briefly again. Yeah. So our you know our antidote to that was showing up at people's doors and having face to face conversations to reestablish some sort of connection and try and rebuild trust and empathize with where folks are at and and listen. Um, and so we took what we'd learned doing grassroots climate organizing and just started with, started with relationships to build up volunteer teams. And I think a really, really key part of it for us was having both worked on campaigns before, we realized that the culture of electoral campaigning for the most part um, was numbers, numbers, numbers. You know, how many doors can you knock? How many conversations can you have? And nobody was measuring the quality of those conversations. And from where we were situated in in the campaign apparatus, we could see that that was really doing a disservice to candidates and to the party. And that we really needed to s- just slow down and focus on what what actually is the quality of these interactions. And then who, you know, who are we actually reaching out to? Um, too, too much the party abandons trying to persuade folks who don't agree with us and and started instead just relying, relying on demographic shifts and turnout to really carry us to victory. And so yeah. we really intentionally prioritized slow conversations focused on listening rather than getting our point across and reaching reaching beyond the usual suspects to to pull new folks sure. in.
0: So we've had George Gale on the program who started People's Action and I'm hoping Matt Morrison's gonna be on soon. And you know they they're among the people who have kind of promoted and even pioneered the deep canvassing approach which is starts with listening and prioritizes listening would you say that maybe you didn't call it that but is, is that kind of the approach you use sort of a deep canvassing approach
2: yeah I would say so pretty much you know nobody was nobody's talking about that in, right. in 2018 when we got going but I think just kind of intuitively from our experience um, that that's more or less what what we were doing as that's well That's what
0: you were doing so I want to get to um, your term in office, again, it'll have to be brief, Chloe, but maybe a story from Chloe about a person or two you encountered at the door, because I've heard you make mention of this, that that uh, really uh, brings to life what Canyon's talking about with people who felt like they'd never been even asked their opinion, let alone um, heard.
1: Yeah, but you know, there's so many stories that were so formative for me as the kind of figured out how to talk with people across across the divide um you know the first one that just came into mind is that i was you know i i can by myself which i really which was best for me it's not best for everybody but i remember driving up to this trailer at the end of a very long dirt road and um you know i could tell that there was a a guy in there that i was going to talk to and it, you know i'm saying all of this from the position of uh of a white person and i i Understand all of the privilege that that goes behind this little anecdote, but you know, I walked up to this door, and you can't help but be a little bit scared when you're by yourself out in the in the middle of the woods. And I, you know, this trailer had all the like all of the curtains were drawn, and it was just you know it was a bit much. So I knocked on the door, and uh and this guy this guy opened it, and you know, I said, Hi, "I'm Chloe, I'm running for state rep. I was just stopping by to see what's on your mind," and he said no one has ever taken the time to knock on my door before everyone just judges what my house looks like. And you're the first politician to ever come and talk with me. So thank you so much. And he, he voted for me and I wrote him a little clincher card. And when I went back to visit him again, you know, he had it on his fridge and uh, wow. you know, I, as when he was my constituent, I, I would help him and we'd talk. And it was just the, an example for me of how, whether we intend to or not, there are so many people left out of our traditional campaigning process who are so eager for connection and to be heard and represented. And even the smallest act of his knocking on a door can really do so much to reinstill some faith in democracy.
0: And would you say that that might have been a particularly uh, poignant example, but would you say that those kinds of encounters where, from the look of things, most candidates, including Democratic candidates, wouldn't even have walked up the road, but then got ultimately kind of a fairly warm reception or at least an open reception. Was that really unusual or did you have that experience more than a handful of times?
1: You know, I, I think for most people who have candidates, they can resonate with this, but like 80% of the time you're a little nervous, but people are, are perfectly pleasant. You know, and there's definitely some awkwardness and why is this rando at my door? You got to I always thought of it as disarming with kindness 20% of the time people are not nice. And it's just pretty unavoidable when you're canvassing. And yeah, for me, like so many, that 20%, you know, sticks with me for decades Whereas the good conversations (laughs) just disappear after a moment. But but, um, I always try and hold on to that memory of like people it's, you know, it can be, you might not have, not every door, might be that easy or that kind, Mm -hmm. but that, Search for connection is still so important, despite that risk that somebody may not be the nicest.
0: Right. And this is so important because that 20 percent was 20 percent in a universe that you had deliberately made to be much broader, much more inclusive of people um, who are not already in the choir and so you were picking out a base of doors that by definition would have been less friendly than the typical liberal candidate would create in the first place. And still it was 80 percent was uh, a good reception, 20 percent not. I think that so many liberal candidates and Dems assume it's the flip, that most people will be mean, most people will be hateful, and you'll only get an occasional one, but you've clearly – demonstrated otherwise. So tell me a little bit about once you were in office, and then we'll take the final few minutes to shift and talk about uh, your new venture, uh, Dirt Road Organizing. But tell me a little bit about once you were in office, was it disillusioning or were you able to get some of your stuff done? I mean, how did you relate to your fellow legislators, many of whom were Republican?
1: Yes, I, you know, I served four years in the Maine legislature and it was it was a huge honor. The By far the biggest issue I heard from constituents while door knocking is just this deep need to feel heard and represented. And so I tried to be as responsive and transparent and present as I possibly could be. All of the bills that I sponsored came directly from themes on the campaign trail or conversations that I had with folks and the, the vast, vast majority of my bills were, were bipartisan. Um, you know, I, I think I really came to appreciate even more the power of good organizing in politics, the good bills that really change something don't happen without communities on the ground who are organizing and being brave enough to, to share their voices with those who are voting on bills. Um, uh, there's some legislation I'm super proud of. You know, we passed the strongest Good Samaritan law in the country, which was one of my bills, which makes sure that people can call 911 when there's an overdose and not have a fear of being arrested. So we have the strongest protections in the country. I also sponsored the bill that ensures that independents can vote in primaries in Maine. A third of Mainers are independents, but we had closed primaries, so that's fixed now. And there's um, a whole bunch of other things that I'm I'm really proud of. So. It was disillusioning and also hopeful that good policy can make it through this very murky process.
0: And one of those bills, if I recall, had something to do with um, the environment and climate change and and the main constitution. Is that right?
1: Yes. I sponsored a bill that would add a right in the constitution to uh, the right to a clean and healthy environment. And it, it didn't pass in my tenure, but someone else picked up the mantle and is sponsoring it this year.
0: Wow. And that got some degree of bipartisan support as well?
1: It did get some bipartisan support. I worked really hard with my Republican colleagues to, you know, to find language that we agreed upon and had some really good conversations and compromise and Um, you know, on, on that Good Samaritan bill that I was just talking about, you know, two out of the three members of Democratic leadership in the Senate voted against it. They voted for a more conservative model. And so, so much of the support that came for that bill came from my Republican colleagues. And they're just, you know, some really incredible examples that were so sacred and important to me of just continuing to work across the aisle when you're in the legislature, which is just so much more divisive than, you know, chilling outside on someone's porch under under the trees. Yeah.
0: I'm going to pause for just a moment and tell listeners at WEHC and WISC, wise as well as our podcast listeners that this is two worlds, one country. So we're back and listening again to our guests on Two Worlds, One Country. Um, we are thrilled to have Chloe Maxman and Canyon Woodard with us on the program today. And they're going to tell us a little bit about a new venture they've started, a um, 501C4 organization, I believe it is, called Dirt Road Organizing. Canyon, you want to tell us a little bit about what you all do at Dirt Road?
2: Sure. I'd be thrilled to. Um yeah, it's, it's Dirt Road, if folks can go to dirtroadorganizing.org to learn more, um, but in super brief, it's building, building off what we've learned through years of doing grassroots organizing in rural America and building an organization that can be the, the, the structure to provide concrete tools and strategies to support organizers and potential staff and legislators and aspiring leaders in, in rural America, on the ground through, through trainings and mentorship and, and long-term support. Is um, it strictly political? So when really you
0: to- I'm sorry, Kenya. Is it strictly um, like electoral candidates and their staff and volunteers that you're training, or is it broader than that?
2: Yeah, no, the primary, the primary work is, is broader and, and investing in grassroots community power building in in rural community communities. Um, and then, and then we're also doing some work with with potential candidates um, as well. So, providing trainings for, for those folks too. This is
0: exciting. And is it up and running yet?
2: It is. Yep yeah, we we just launched, and um, we're we're gonna have our our first cohort of of potential staff and and candidates launching this summer and we're we're also doing some work with local orgs and and county committees as well That's that's already already rolling
0: fantastic great tell me the website tell our listeners the website
2: yeah it's dirtroadorganizing.org that's a pretty easy one to remember
0: dirtroadorganizing.org that's great so we're going to wrap up and you all are coming back I uh, went off air for a minute to secure that, um, secure that commitment from you and, and because we've really just begun to scratch the surface. And I want to get into more deeply uh, what you're doing at Dirt Road Organizing. And I also want to talk about your book, Dirt Road Revival. But we'll do that next time. Chloe, do you have any closing words for us before we sign off for this first of two segments with you all?
1: Just thank you so much for, for having us on and so so great to chat about our favorite topic.
0: Oh cool, that's great. Well, thanks again. Uh it's been a pleasure having you all in. I'm excited to have you back. This has been Two Worlds, One Country, the program that explores the underlying causes of the rural urban divide, and then talks to fabulous folks like Chloe and Canyon, who are actively working to overcome them. Undivided Yeah